Gather round and listen to tales of great adventure and brave heroes. Tales of daring individuals fighting monsters and claiming treasure. Tales of bards trying to get into the pants of savage beasts to avoid losing a fight. Tales of people drinking beer, eating pizza, and rolling dice. Tales of people losing their minds over the things that happen to people who only exist in their mind. This is Roland Bones, and I am Ryan Howard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Roland Bones with Ryan Howard, your place for the best in RPG interviews. I'm King of the Boneheads, Ryan Howard, and today we are talking with the man behind Wizard Thief Fighter Studios. His first name is Luca. I pronounce his surname correctly in the interview. I'm not going to screw it up. I said it correctly on there, so I'm not going to attempt it again. But he and I had a great interview. It was a ton of fun. I'm keeping this one short because I'm actually doing this editing on a Friday instead of a Saturday because I'll be traveling on Saturday. But anyway, we had a great episode, and uh, I just wanted to let everyone know um, uh, we did a little poll on Twitter. Uh, If you are not following me on social media, I am at Howard underscore Ryan Gregg on both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Instagram, you can see a whole bunch of minis that I paint and stuff like that. I do updates on both when new episodes go up. But on Twitter, I ran a little poll seeing uh, what you guys would like to be referred to as uh, you know, fanatics, fans of, of Rolling Bones, and uh, and a landslide. Uh, Boneheads has won out, so congratulations, Boneheads. You're a bunch of Boneheads, and I love you. I love each and every one of you boneheads, and I am the king of the boneheads. So yeah, uh, there's nothing else to talk about. Uh, No reason to beat around the bush any further. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy this interview with Luca from Wizard Thief Fighter Studios. I hope you all enjoy it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Rollin' Bones, the mind behind Wizard Thief Fighter Studios a.k.a. WTF Studios, Mr. Luca Reyes. Yes, well done, well done, you got the surname right, good job. Yes. Hey, uh, nice to be here with you, Ryan. Absolutely, thank you for agreeing to do this. Um, Oddly enough, with our time difference, um, it ended up working out somewhat perfectly, because this is my typical time, and this is the time that you're usually doing uh, stuff like this, so uh, yeah. I was afraid it was yeah, not going to work out very out. well. I, I can tell you that uh, Tuesday is okay. The future, the future is still here. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Luca, we are going to start this interview the same way we start every single interview. I'm going to ask you these questions I ask everyone. So uh, we're going to start with a simple one. How did you get into RPGs? I thought it was long ago. I guess it was like uh, fifth grade back in the 90s. There was um, there were a couple of kids that had like an RPG club. I think they were probably sixth grade, and I was fifth grade or something like that. And um, I joined in, and I found out about it, and I uh, made my first character, which was a draconian fighter. 
because they were using some Dragonlance books uh, mishmashed with some second edition books and whatever else they could find. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I um, I picked a broadsword because it sounded cooler than a longsword, even though it did less damage. And I never understood why it did 1d6 plus 1 instead of 1d8 or something like that. Yeah, I, I am all about picking my weapons based on flavor or what sounds cool. Uh, the past couple times that I've played like a finesse character, I've opted for scimitars because I was a two-weapon fighter and wielding two rapiers didn't seem right to me. <laughs> and also dressed the word. Yes, I, I remember that phase as well. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Let, let's not go there too much. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's going to be calling in about their their Kritz Kuwerden character that they created back in in 92 93. Oh yeah, yeah. And 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 every dungeon master had their um, you know, infinitely powerful stand-in NPC NPC Meemonster. Mhm. Yep. <laughs> uh, oh, that was so bad. <laughs> so, of all the games that you've played over your years as a, uh, a fan of RPGs, what would you say is your favorite game? Well, I have to say games sort of uh, blend together by now, mm -hmm. but uh, I'm really a fan of sort of Dungeons & Dragons and the games that grew out of that. Basically, games when you, where you roll a 20-sided die and you try to get a 20 so that you get the crit. <laughs> and as far as I'm concerned, it's all the same game. There, there are small variations and, and flavorings and some changes, but uh, by this point, yeah, that I, I just like it. It's, um, it's simple, and I like the feeling of rolling that that funky shaped die. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So you've already told us a little bit about your first character. Um, do you remember his name? <laughs> Bane. <laughs> it was Bane. <laughs> of course. Was this 1993? Uh, yeah, it was 1993. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> he had just broken the bat. Exactly. It was pretty bad. <laughs> At least you didn't go with what a lot of people, uh, maybe a few years younger, would have gone with, with a, a first-time character, uh, something like Goku. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that came later. Uh, I... <laughs> I missed a lot of that, but it, it was pretty bad. Then again, like it was also that classic thing uh, back in the day when the instructions for Dungeon Masters were, don't run Monty Hall campaigns. Don't let the <laughs> players have cool stuff. Don't let them use their cool stuff too much. So my character had wings, but then uh, the DM did everything they could to make those wings completely useless, right down mm. to giving my character flying ability level... E or something like that. Like this was in um, uh, again mishmash of first and second edition D and D, and the basic effect of this was that my character could use the wings to glide down from a high space while making themselves very vulnerable to attacks, and that was about it. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a bit of a letdown, along with the broadsword. It, it was a bit of a letdown. At least he didn't go full on with the oh no, we're in an underdark campaign now. No, no. Soon after that, we went into rifts, and, and then that was fun as well. As we grow in the game and, and play more and more, we kind of develop our own unique styles, both as players and GMs. So how would you describe your style as both a player and a GM? 
Hmm. Interesting question. Well, as a DM, I, uh, game master, I tend to play it pretty rules light and pretty loose with the rules these days. Uh, I like to give a lot of um, creative and narrative control to the players. So what I'll often uh, be doing is uh, um, asking asking open-ended questions of the players. Like if one if only one player in the group is a dwarf, I will ask them to be the stand-in for all dwarves in the setting. So when dwarves come up, I will first ask them a thing about the dwarves. So if I have like a dwarven tavern planned, I'll ask that player, like, what do the dwarves drink? What do they eat? Um, what kind of architecture do they use? And stuff like that. Okay. Uh, I, I run this then, you know, pretty open. I, I maintain a soft veto because you will always find some player who gets into the head that, oh my God, this is amazing. And I've had three beers and I'm going to say that each dwarf has two additional mouths hidden somewhere in their body, one for liquids and one for gases, and you know, and, or worse. Um, mm -hmm. I, I have had players try to put uh, portable holes on the bodies of their characters and then go into excruciating details about where those portable holes are located. So, uh, so yeah, <laughs> I tend to veto those things and try to like move past it because, mm -hmm. you know, otherwise it's it's just a drinking game. Like how ridiculous I can make my character, but mm -hmm. uh, pretty much like that. So so it tends to be pr pretty open ended, and uh, I also like to give my my players stuff and then just see how they break the world with them because uh, it you know it's not like I can't make it up again or change it or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm really a fan of giving first level characters. Um, effectively um, setting changing nukes just to see what they'll do mm -hmm. um, because you know outsized consequence for a consequences for a bunch of schlubs that's fantastic and also as I've gotten older I've got less time to run a full uh, campaign so I don't want to wait until they're like ooh and now you are level 5 and now you can fly and do interesting things no let's see what happens like the character's got like 3 hit points let's see what happens if they've got like this <laughs> janky fly spell that doesn't always work you know, here's this spell. There's a 5% chance every round that just ends. <laughs> and the player is still going to use it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's funny. Um, and then, uh, on the other hand, as a player, uh, I've uh, started becoming really interested much more in um, in the flavor and, and uh, creative stuff around what the player can do. So it's less about the power fantasy and making a very powerful character, but just about, you know, doing fun things. So uh, once I, uh, in one game, I got really ridiculously lucky rolling the stats. So it was a 5e game, and I rolled, uh, and the, the group already had like 5th level characters or something, or 4th. So I rolled um, rolled a character. And uh, I ended up starting with a halfling monk with 20 wisdom and 20 dexterity. Nice. So if you know your 5th edition, that means uh, that if you take the right um, feats and everything, that character can basically not not be hit at mm -hmm. all so long as you don't want to um, and it was brilliant and then I played that character as this um, strange halfling monk who was uh, collecting selfies using a demon camera like with his uh, trophies and where he went so I didn't actually <laughs> play for XP or treasure I like gave it all away because the guy was in it for the likes and the selfies so. <laughs> naturally yeah so 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 like that <laughs> <laughs> long-winded answer that reminds me of the the one time that my friends and i got to play mutants and masterminds together uh which is a superhero rpg i don't know if you're familiar with it i've run across it but i haven't played it 
Mm-hmm. It's it's a really fun it's a really fun superhero RPG. I've had the creator on the show before, but he was playing a character that had a mech suit, but his character was also a video game streamer. Mm-hmm. And so every <laughs> combat he was streaming, and he'd call out, "All right, if someone donates this much money, I will do this." <laughs> Breaking the fourth wall there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. It, stuff like that sometimes just, just makes things all, all the more fun. Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. I, I like it when, when um, like both as a player and as, uh, as a game master, when, when the game world becomes something different from what I expected because it's, uh, it's um, a shared world that, uh, that we're all making together around, around the table during play. Mm-hmm. And and when I don't know what's going to happen, it's brilliant. So, yeah. So, again, over the years, you know, those of us who love this hobby as as much as, as we do, we have a lot of very fond memories tied in with playing RPGs. So what is your fondest RPG memory? Damn, you keep coming up with these hard questions. Like, the fondest. Or, or, okay. Um, yeah, there... <laughs> There are lots of fond ones, but I guess like uh, like one of the silliest. Uh, I don't know if it's the fondest, but it's definitely one of the silliest. We were uh, in a, in a mountain hut playing um, RPGs uh, around New Year's time. So this was um, late high school, early university. So you know, um, there there may have may have been beverages involved or whatever. Uh, so. One of my players ended up uh, at one point because we played like a marathon. Like I think I think we played two or three days straight, which which is something I can't manage anymore. But uh, <laughs> but back then, still. So at one point, um, we uh, we had one player role playing a cabbage on the astral plane in discussions with a rabbit, which was quite brilliant. And then uh, as the game progressed from there, we ended up deciding that it would be a fun thing uh, to do a live-action roleplay of Spartan Elves. Because the day before, there had been about um, a foot of snowfall. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we got these old woolen uh, cloaks, for cloaks of Elvenkind, obviously, and uh, uh, took some farming implements and went out to live-action roleplay Spartan Elves. In the snow, and um, yeah, I'm 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 very happy none of us got hurt, but it's it's definitely a fond memory. <laughs> well, over the years, we share the table with all kinds of different types of people, and some of them we love, some of them we just don't really like all that much, though. And the worst of these people, we tend to call that guy. So, Luca, what is mm. your best or worst that guy story? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> okay, so we've got a lot of them. I won't go into the very worst because, you know, they're, they're pretty bad. But uh, I've, ha- I've had quite a few, few sessions with that. And, uh, like, I noted it uh, before when, uh, like, the kinds of things that came up. Because often uh, we were playing, there was also... Uh, you know, so, some alcohol involved, uh, and sometimes it got out of hand. So there were the sort of in-game events, uh, 
like like the one I mentioned with the unfortunately located portable hole where I had to like ask the players to draw a black curtain over the descriptions and we are not going there. Um, but then I also had like uh, another one. Uh, so in one um, one time we were playing and one of my friends uh, got a little bit inebriated, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, just just aside from his role playing becoming rather you know irrelevant to everything and like the the character is trying to literally break the fourth wall and was looking for the <laughs> seams in reality like the character is like i think i'm just a character i'm not really a real person which you know was funny enough but then uh, then the player fell asleep on on the gaming table and yeah and he just slept there <laughs> so we finished our game around him and we couldn't move him because he didn't want to be moved so we just left him there. So my, my friend spent the night uh, sleeping slumped over my gaming table. Yeah. Dungeons and Drunkards, or if your name is Hanker Infernal, Drunkens and Dragons, uh, can definitely be very, very interesting. Uh, yeah. It's something I've started avoiding these days. I've started mm-hmm. uh, li- limiting how many drinks are available and... Mm-hmm taking a bit more of a supervisory role on the players. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but, we yeah. had to set, at, at one of my old tables, we had to set a rule of you cannot be drunk at the table because I ran a murder mystery session yeah. where one of my players was just absolutely gone. And it was one of the biggest train wrecks of a session that I've ever had. And it was also maybe my fifth or sixth session DMing ever. So, okay, uh, my my condolences. That was <laughs> that must have been hard. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We we also now now uh, limited quite a lot, and uh, but we also tend to run shorter sessions. So mm-hmm. uh, I just don't have the stamina or the time <laughs> I used to. Like I used to run like a six hour session. Now getting people together for six hours, yeah, that's not really going to happen. Uh, but I also just try to keep it like tighter and focused, like two and a half, three hours or so. And mm-hmm. that generally also um, stops any players falling asleep on the table nowadays. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> what is your worst uh, uh, that guy story? My worst that guy story. I'm... I'm very fortunate I don't have that many. I mean, the the one where that one player got very drunk, uh, that, that was definitely a th- kind of a that guy moment. But I think my biggest one, uh, this was a it's what my character would do moment. Mm-hmm. And I had a player who had brought his girlfriend who was not a player... And we were all running for the first time a game called Deadlands, which is a Weird West game. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I had crafted this whole historical narrative that involved, like, actual Wild West history. And I didn't count on my players having absolutely not a care in the world for any of that backstory. Yeah. So we start at a saloon because it's a Western game. And uh, one of the players is a bounty hunter, and one of the other players is a wanted criminal. (laughs) And I knew something was going to happen, but I did not realize to what extent it would happen. Mm. And so I thought it would be, hey, I've got a poster with your name on it. 
Yeah, well, what are you going to do about it? I don't know. We'll see. But what it turned into was, I'm going to take you in right now. And he went to grab the guy, and the roles were in the, uh, the wanted criminal's favor, so he kept getting out of it. And it turned into, I'm drawing my gun and shooting. Yeah. And it it eventually turned into full-on PvP where the wanted criminal took no hits, no damage whatsoever, mm-hmm. and just kind of made a mockery of, of the that guy player in this situation. And at the time, I was pretty pissed off because I had this whole thing planned <laughs> that they were going to do that they were not doing. Yeah. But in the moment, it was hilarious just, just how how far that whole thing went and and how one player's stubborn determination just to to be that guy and to and to play that character that way really just kind of worked against him do you generally find that like with players you uh, you have a conversation with them um like before a session or before a game just to to lay out expectations and like where to go mhm yeah yeah i I try to do that. The The thing about this that, that really caught me off guard was this was a group of people that I'd played with a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was not behavior that this player had exhibited before. I honestly think it was just his girlfriend was there and he wanted ah. to, if not impress her. Yeah. I, I feel like she had something to do with it. She, He was definitely not as focused as he normally was with her there and her not mm-hmm. as interested in the game. And I think that definitely kind of played into yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, re- relationships and games are interesting. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, oh god, like like when I was younger, some of my my worst uh, things were trying to run a game, and then one of the players was my girlfriend. Oh, that was uncomfortable. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm but, I'm very yeah. fortunate right now. The the game I'm running, my wife is a player in it, and she's actually a, she's a good player. Mm-hmm. She, oh, she does very well with yeah. it. There are things in RPGs that just kind of seem to come with the territory a lot of the times. And some of that stuff, as GMs and players, we grow to love. But some of it, after a while of playing, we begin to wonder why it's there in the first place. So, Luca, what is your least favorite RPG cliche? Oh, least favorite? Jeez. I mean, there's there's a bunch of them. I've I've grown to love starting in the tavern because mm-hmm. sometimes uh, that ends up with uh, like me not even actually having to run a game because <laughs> the players just like take off and have their own story of of the tavern, mm-hmm. uh, and it's not even su- such an annoying cliche. One one that I find um, qu- quite uh, annoying is uh, this old one that, uh, that the game master essentially has to have all the strings in their hands that they're um, like running. A story, because mm-hmm. it's not so much that as the game master, um, I feel that I'm I'm running some kind of story. I'm presenting circumstances and then sort of responding to the players and improvising as we go along. So, uh, so this sort of emphasis that that I think is very prevalent on having to have a lot of preparation and having to get everything just right and having to you know master all of the rules. It, it feels to me like. Um, uh, like wearing uh, almost um, you know bricks in your shoes and rocks in your backpack because instead of letting the the game master focus on the imagination and creating something unexpected and and different, um, 
all the rules, all the preparation narrows down the scope of the imagination, the scope of what can be done in the game. When actually, like, like if we're really honest, when we're when we're doing role play, we're basically we've basically got an unlimited special effects budget, right? Mm-hmm. And then instead we're doing five foot moves, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just like, please come on, <laughs> give, give me. You know, give give me some some lighter stuff, some some better things to deal with than than the five foot move. Now we've got this one last question, and I've noticed that a lot of times, uh, more artistically inclined people will struggle with this next question. So I'm interested to see where your mind takes you on this one. If you could put anything on a T-shirt, what would it be? If I could put anything on a T-shirt, well, I've put a lot of things in T-shirts, um, but. I don't know, probably um, just the next thing I, I am going to put in a t-shirt, and I haven't yet decided, but I'm thinking of doing a series of uh, t-shirts featuring uh, the sort of classic little doodled characters that I use as stand-ins uh, for uh, different classes. So um, probably finally get get around to making a pointy helmet t-shirt. <laughs> so pointy helmet is this... Uh, is this character that uh, nominally is a fighter, but basically uh, their main ability is um, uh, survival and cowardice and running away and telling a good story about how great a fighter they are. <laughs> That's pretty great. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and, and he looks a, a little bit like a stick figure devil. Now, when you say pointy helmet, I immediately have pictures of uh, some very old German man from, like, 1905 with a a large mustache. Is that kind of what you you were thinking of? Oh, not quite. This character has already, like, existed for quite a while. Uh, So I'll just draw it for you, and then you can look at it, and then you can describe it. Uh, Hang on. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, so I was thinking of the one point. It's it's two. Yeah. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha there. Yeah, it's it's not it's not the old German imperial helm with the mm. uh, with the point. No, it's it's like the the regular uh, Viking, fake Viking archetype with the two two horns on the helmet. Now uh, transitioning a little bit into talking more about your specific work, um, in looking at a lot of your art that you do for your books, I have to ask you this question because it's come up on multiple episodes. Are mm-hmm. you a Dune guy? Mm, you mean the books or the movies or the books? Uh, I liked the first book very much. Yeah, um, and the like the the original series. I, I read all of them, mm-hmm. uh, so I had a lot of fun with it. I enjoyed some of the other stuff that Frank Herbert wrote as well. The prequels are one of the most amazing books I have ever seen. <laughs> they are such utter drivel. They are so badly <laughs> written. Mm-hmm. I could not believe it. I tried, I tried to read like one of the books from the Butlerian Jihad. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow! It is, it is incredible. I, 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 I am truly incredulous of that. So, um, <laughs> so in that sense, yeah, yeah, I, I, I do like mm-hmm. Dune. Like the highs and the lows of it, it's, uh, it's hilarious. And I, I asked that question because in a lot of your art, I see stuff that reminds me a lot of uh, specifically the uh, Jodorowsky Dune movie that, that was supposed to mm-hmm. be made in, in the 70s. And I think part of that might be that, and, and I've heard, I heard the guys on Vintage RPG make this comparison, uh, your, your style is, is very evocative and, and reminiscent in a way of, of what 
like Mobius did back in those days. Would, would you consider him to be an, an influence? On... Oh yeah, definitely. Like uh, like John Giraud and mm-hmm. um, I didn't know about Hodorowski back back then, but like in 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 high school, I went through a large chunk of the heavy metal uh, magazine mm-hmm. um, comic books, and uh, so, so Mobius was was definitely a, a major influence. Then like others like Kazan, and then I like uh, Hugo Pratt a lot, and a lot of these. Um, Nowadays, they're they're uh, classical uh, cartoonists, comic book authors. Well, bande dessinée, BD, BD authors, I guess. But yeah, um, they're they're definitely a, a, an influence, and um, it's it's definitely partly there. I mean, um, a, a large thing uh, thing about the the ultraviolet grasslands is that the, the whole thing is about a, a long, strange trip across a vast steppe, right? So. <laughs> Obviously, all this comes in, and then you have uh, the deserts and the desert scenes. And uh, I'll I'll tell you a little uh, secret about why I love drawing desert scenes. Mm-hmm. It's a lot faster because you don't have to draw leaves. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. For, for anyone wondering why, for an extended period of the 1980s, Spider-Man wore an all-black costume. That's your answer right there. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Like anytime you've got something that's like really detailed or really patterned or stuff like that, it is just incredible how much work it is, depending on the style you're using to to render it. So um, the more I've been drawing, the more I've also begun to appreciate. I mentioned him for um, Hugo Pratt, the guy who did uh, Corto Maltese. Uh, because he has this incredibly uh, fast and loose uh, style with uh, with ink and brush. And yeah, it, le- it lets me make drawings faster. And at the end of the day, if I can spend less time making a drawing, it makes me happy. Mm-hmm. Because then it means I can make a, a second one or I can do or I can write something and so on. And kind of continuing down the, the path of just talking specifically about art, how do you do your drawings and and why do you uh, use that specific medium? Mm, so I use a few a few different approaches. Uh, which ones uh, do you have in mind? Right now, um, just like specifically the stuff for the for the books. Um, okay, like do so, you? Oh, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, it's fine. Um, I basically uh, do the initial drawings uh, and the inking. I do it on paper, mm-hmm. pretty much all of it, uh, because I uh, I had this long detour where, like, when the first graphics tablet came out, I was like, "Oh my god, this is amazing!" And it's got undo, and I can like draw in Photoshop. This is really great. Uh, but in retrospect, I've come to really dislike um, uh, straight-up drawing on a, on a graphics tablet or using Photoshop mm-hmm. because uh, I realized that I actually didn't progress as an artist, that I didn't learn new techniques uh, while doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, because first of all, with the undo, it was always possible to fix mistakes. Uh, and then second, uh, because of this temptation that since I can fix every mistake, I can make a perfect drawing using Photoshop, I spent way too long on each individual drawing when the actual, uh, at least for me, much better approach to learning how to draw and improving my skill <laughs> is to just draw a lot and then to also be able to see the mistakes I've made. So for, for almost all of the, the drawings in the UVG, the initial work is, um, is done on paper, different kinds of paper. I've got like stacks of it here. Uh, with um, with pencil uh, pencil sketches, and uh, then I do the inks in, in different ways. So I use uh, brushes, markers, pens, uh, felt tips, 
all kinds of stuff just to put black lines on it. Mm-hmm. Um, then after that, I digitize it, which is a fancy way to say I take a photo of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, uh, the coloring for the UVG is almost entirely done in... Uh, there are some watercolors as well, but most of it is done in Procreate. So it's this app on the iPad, mm-hmm. which I have to say is straight up the best drawing app I've ever yet seen. Like, it's amazing. So, so yeah, then, that. Um, make it... Uh, usually, I add a little bit of texture because I like to work with flat colors. Mm-hmm. But if you just use uh, flat colors, it can be very flat. So a simple solution is to just like add a noise layer with a little bit of uh, texture on it and um, set it to overlay, and then it makes it a little bit, uh, just a little bit grungier. And I, I asked this question. This is something that I got into a little bit with Larry Elmore and something that I was planning on getting into a lot more with Wayne Reynolds before uh, that that interview fell through. Do you feel that basically it a hand-done, a hand-drawn piece of art or a hand-painted piece of art feels more real than something done electronically? Oh, yeah, I definitely do. Uh, like... Like, just for me as an artist, making something by hand uh, is a better feeling. So, um, you know, for, for work, before I, I went into this full time, I ended up, as you probably know, in most jobs, I ended up staring at computer screens a lot. And it's just, you know, tiresome for the eyes. So mm-hmm. it feels much more real to be doing something on paper. It's more satisfying. It, it gives me a better feeling. Then um, another step for me as the artist, uh, there is the fact that... Uh, if I have an original piece, it is also, you know, an asset. It's something that, okay, if, if I need to eat, I can sell, just quite aside from selling uh, the license for the work. Um, but then also, finally, just technically, uh, there is a level of um, randomness and unpredictable and unpredictability to using physical media mm-hmm. that um, you really just can't get so much with uh, with most digital art. You can to an extent, but it's it's somehow not not the same. The interaction of uh, you know pigments on on paper and the accidents that happen, like uh, like Bob Ross's happy little accidents. Yep. There's a lot of those in the book. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of those, but um, you know you've got to use them as well. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and I th- and I think it makes a difference. So so the other thing that I find. S- a little bit frustrating these days with with a lot of, uh, especially fantasy art, is that while it might be technically and stylistically very proficient, a lot of the art that is done using Photoshop, using digital uh, oil paints and so on, has a very samey feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, because like like if you're using Photoshop, it's very easy to get something like anatomy right. Because all you do is, you, you know, you get like a 3D model, you pose it, uh, you assemble like uh, the different characters you're going to need, you pose them, and then you overpaint, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you're doing it by, by hand, uh, you can, you know, you have references, but you're not copying them perfectly. So, um, so each artist's style of drawing people and landscapes and characters starts to become more their own, becomes more like, uh, more like a fingerprint of that artist. And it just makes it interesting. Um, it's like, uh, yeah, it's, it's like the difference between a, a 3D animation, which can be really slick and polished, or then you look at something a little bit grungier. Like, do you know Korgoth of Barbaria? 
Uh, no, no. I okay, don't. it's a Cartoon it's Network okay. Adult Swim episode. That's you know pretty grothy, but it's it's sort of spoofing off the old Thundar of Barbaria. Uh, mm-hmm. Wait, Thundar the Barbarian. Yeah, Thunder the Barbarian. So it's spoofing those, and it's got this um, slightly weird style, a bit like the um, the old uh, Eon Flux uh, cartoons on MTV. Mm-hmm. So so this sort of like weird, slightly off look. I think. Um, I think it's nice because it's like uh, like the painting, like the art has fingerprints on it. Whereas mm-hmm. if it's super polished, it's like, well, th- this is nice. Um, it's very proficient, thank you, but I don't feel um, a person behind it anymore. Kind of moving away from uh, art a little bit, but not too terribly much. I want to talk about kind of your general design philosophy when it comes to RPGs. So... If you could describe your your philosophy for designing games, what what would it be? Oh, God, it's um, it's basically trying to uh, understand what people are doing with with the game at the table when they play. Uh, so, so I try to design for um, also I try to design for people who are playing in a situation similar to my own, mm-hmm. uh, which is that basically you're getting together with um, you know. In real time, or either uh, over like Discord or over Skype, uh, with people that you consider friends and that you are actually going to be talking with them. So, mm-hmm. um, so the communication, uh, so so it it, it assumes like good faith uh, on the behalf of all the participants, and it assumes they're going to communicate and talk, and they are going to come up with you know human problems, um, mm-hmm. but they're going to talk them out and solve them. And the game is not a tool for them to solve their problems. The game is just a game. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I try to, yeah, I, I basically try to make it for for people who are there together as friends to to play a game and um, to figure things out. So it doesn't have to um, be a perfectly interlocking single game because. Uh, Okay, I I, can, I actually have to spool it a little back from game design. So there there's this okay. thing that I uh, that I think um, about role playing games in general and role playing mm-hmm. well role playing and role playing games that we're actually talking about it the wrong way. So like when we're together at the table, mm-hmm. what we're we've got is a role playing session. So it's basically playtime for adults, right? Yeah. And we're playing different kinds of games while we are there. So what, so we often say just like, oh, it's a role-playing game. Uh, Dungeons mm-hmm. & Dragons is a role-playing game. But it's not. It's a whole bunch of games that are played together during role-play time. Mm-hmm. So when you're there, you have like one game for overland travel, another game for tactical combat, another game for uh, inventory management, another, um, there's like the leveling mini-game, there's the character creation game. So each of these is specifically its own little game. Um, and they interlock in different ways. But as a designer, uh, I can't predict exactly how these different games are going to interlock at an individual table because mm-hmm. by embracing sort of randomness and improvisation, I also have to embrace the fact that you know it's possible that uh, players and referees are just going to veer completely off course or have to do something different, and then they're going to improvise stuff. So, mm-hmm. so I have to assume you know good faith on their behalf and the fact that they're going to improvise and use the rules in different ways uh, because otherwise I'm just going to make a locked uh, box that does one specific game or one specific play style and then um, deals with edge cases by just saying don't go out of the box don't go out of the edge case you know don't go to the edge like when you go there well no you can't do that 
So, so yeah, I'd, I'd say like the, the philosophy is try to think of uh, the people playing this as people, try to think of it as um, different games that people play together, and then just, uh, you know, muddle through because it's hard. <laughs> things mm-hmm. go wrong. So kind of taking things back to the, the earliest days, um, you are from, you're from Slovenia, correct? Yes, I have a Slovenian mm-hmm. passport, yes. Gotcha. But uh, back when I was born, it was Yugoslavia. So um, mm-hmm. the country I was born in doesn't exist anymore. Absolutely. Um, so what was it like kind of – what was the environment for role-playing like in that post-Yugoslavia period that, that you, uh, I guess, were, were born into and found yourself growing up in? At the, well, actually – I discovered uh, role-playing games when I was at international school in East Africa. Gotcha. So I lived there for eight years, mm-hmm. uh, returning in 96 after all the wars and everything was over, mm-hmm. mostly. Um, so first of all, in Africa, it was very isolated. Like We had uh, basically the books that kids would bring, uh, mm-hmm. and it would be a random mishmash, and you'd just have to figure out how to make it work. Then in uh, Slovenia, there were uh, there was basically no role playing hobby when I came there. I uh, you know introduced it myself to in my small town, and mm-hmm. it was very much viewed as like, what is this weird thing you're doing? Why are you not uh, Why are you not playing the proper games that the boys and men should play? Like uh, you know, like football, um, mm-hmm. what you probably call soccer. Or yep. uh, there were a couple of uh, card games that were also popularly played, so Tarok mm-hmm. and Prishkula. Uh, and it was like, these are the games you play. If you're playing other games, you are strange. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, so it, it, did, um, it did force a lot of improvisation. Um, mm-hmm. it, it was probably what also really, to a large extent, uh, drove me to start designing game systems because... Um, you know, when we came to the edge of, of something, like we wanted to now do something different. Now the players have uh, unleashed guns in this world. Okay, <laughs> um, great. We don't have, like, we've got like three books, uh, three, three old second edition books. Like the only thing for guns they've got is the, you know, the arquebus. Mm-hmm. Yay. What even, <laughs> even is an arquebus? <laughs> you know? Um, so, so then we had to improvise and make stuff up. And... Um, Mm. Yeah, it was a lot of improvisation. So mm-hmm. I, I've kind of been working through this with a few uh, subsequent guests, and um, just kind of figuring out how how environment influences kind of role playing and and envisioning fantasy, and what a lot of people like myself who have grown up in America and only know about central and eastern europe in like tom clancy novels where everything's <laughs> concrete buildings that were yeah. that were built by tito and stalin a lot of us don't mm-hmm. realize kind of how beautiful some of the the geography in, in that area is did you feel any kind of influence or or pull in in your mind with that kind of environment around you well, of course. I mean, everybody does. Like, the, mm-hmm. the environments you live in, the things you experience, uh, the, the culture you live in, it, it all gets pulled in. Like, like in any role-playing game, you know, there, there are some people who rail against using pop culture and stuff and bringing it in. But uh, it's, it's basically every uh, game master is going to be using, and every player is going to be using the world they know 
to help them em envision an imaginary world. So it's I, I think like in any game, it's perfectly fine to say, you know, um, the cat is the size of a car. And mm -hmm. why? Because, yeah, sure, it's not in-game. Like in, in the fiction, they don't know what a car is maybe. But for the players, it's like, oh, okay, immediately you can imagine what size that is. Because if you tell uh, like a person in, in Europe, oh, you know, the cat is the size of an elephant, if they haven't seen an elephant, they don't know how big elephants are, that elephants are bigger than cars. Like that's, you know, it's, it doesn't, it's not a thing. And then when it comes to the specific environment, uh, um, yeah, absolutely. The, um, but like the landscape of a lot of Central and Eastern Europe, it's, uh, it's very diverse. You've got different places. Uh, it ranges from the, the, the Mediterranean coast and like the old Italian cities on, on, uh, on the coast and Venice and stuff. And then you've got uh, the Alps rising up and the deep forests and the old growth and the pine woods and blah, 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 on all the way to, you know, Carpathia and the, the deep swamps up in uh, uh, the border between, what is it, Poland and Belarus. There's a lot. It's, um, it's, it's half a continent. Uh, and uh, the, I, I would flip it around. Like the thing um, that was actually quite, in, in retrospect, quite challenging for me was uh, that growing up, um, like the dominant culture that I was exposed to watching movies, watching TV, was Western, which basically means was, you know, from the USA. And it was... Um, it was quite uncomfortable because, uh, and also in the news and so on, because the basic way that my country was presented was it's this, uh, it's this primitive place with these uh, like ethnic rivalries, basically tribes who have been having this conflict for hundreds of years, and they're all like, uh, you know, uh, primitive and violent and hostile, and uh, like all these communist countries are poor and horrible, and there's no culture, and it's all great. And it, it's, uh, it's the kind of thing that engenders, I think, an inferiority complex in a lot of people. It, it made me definitely feel uncomfortable and, and inferior because, mm -hmm. uh, like, um, I mean, this is still a case. If, if you look even today at uh, a lot of U.S. productions, basically Eastern European characters, you know, it's basically evil Russians. <laughs> or, or you've got Dracula. Uh, mm -hmm. Like, uh, l l recently... Uh, uh, recently, I was I was very tired one evening, and I watched this this really horrible movie starring Nicolas Cage. Which, okay, I mean, okay, you know, uh, called Left Behind. Mm -hmm. Do you know it? <laughs> I'm very familiar. We'll, it is we'll bad. get into that in a and second. And then I found out that the main like bad guy in that thing is called Nikolai Carpathia. Yep. And I was just like, really, <laughs> mm -hmm. really? I mean, really? This is this is like um, okay. This is like saying that uh, the, the bad guy in uh, you know in, in a series about uh, like um, ravenous capitalist uh, vampire bankers taking over the world is called Joe Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's that bad. I was just like, mm -hmm. wow. Uh, so um, so so yeah, there was always this tension. Um, uh, but it did also mean that when it comes to uh, like. Like something in a in a classical, uh, more more classical kind of D and D game where you've got like the castles and the dungeons and stuff like that. It's uh, we've got all that stuff, so mm -hmm. it's not a question of like oh let's imagine what it would be like to see it and so on. It's like oh right yeah a castle um, yeah uh, like uh, that castle on top of the hill in our town like uh, this is what the entrance to the dungeon looks like you know mm -hmm. or uh, when you're getting into the crypts it's like. Uh, 
there there are dozens of old crypts or World War One uh, memorials and whatever that I can just imagine when I'm um, describing things. Um, so in some ways, it makes also the job of the the referee easier in that environment because if you're trying to do like a fantasy game, it's like. Oh yeah, you know, just imagine it's like exactly like um, like that old town only 200 years ago when they didn't have radios. Um, so I just have to I have to tell you this because you brought it up, um, and this is a an aspect of American culture that might have made its way over there, but I, I'm willing to bet probably didn't. Um, the Left Behind that movie is actually just the most recent entry in a very long series of both movies and books that were a product of the Ronald Reagan uh, moral majority era that we had here in the U.S. in the late 80s, early 90s. Mm -hmm. And um, they are essentially uh, super fundamentalist religious porn (laughs) is the best way to describe them. And I say that as a very religious person myself. They are, they're straight up like revelations happens and this is what happens and Mm -hmm. and in kind of that that reaganism that these books came from the antichrist would in fact be a person with a slavic sounding name (laughs) okay well so that's there you go just a little bit of background for you from where that came from yeah like all I, i knew of it was like half of that movie because then it became unwatchable and then the wikipedia synopsis and then i was just like wow mm-hmm. this is uh yeah it's well yeah it, it, it is um it is it is a weird thing yeah and like uh, when, when you get to like slavic sounding that is also a thing i, mm-hmm. I found you know it, it was um, a hard thing because uh for, for me the language because i went to school in africa the language i'm most comfortable writing in and expressing myself in is english but mm-hmm. At the same time, uh, like when I was uh, growing up, I was very, very much aware that uh, uh, people with names that sound like mine are never the heroes. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, it it yeah it, it makes this uh, it makes it um it makes it interesting, but also sometimes uncomfortable. So oh well, mm-hmm. <laughs> what can you do? I do think though, and and you can chime in on this as much as you want. I I think that. Uh, the work that that the people at CD Projekt Red and and the the man I, I can't even begin to pronounce his name the the guy who wrote the Witcher series I think yep. they're doing a lot to to kind of make kind of that that Slavic uh, folk background a little bit a little bit more accessible to to people in the further west who mm. who are now kind of picking up on on that stuff. Oh yeah, definitely. Like, uh, like I like what they're doing very much, and I, I think it's actually really cool that. Uh, um, I think it's really cool that English is sort of a global lingua franca these days, and I also love it that uh, the word lingua franca is literally French language in Latin, which just like has this whole scope of like what is the major language of different parts of of history. Mm-hmm. Um, because it it actually makes it uh, comparatively easy for for people from all sorts of cultures to actually share their stories. So it's not just about uh, uh, like like if we go to something smaller like uh, role playing games. I actually really enjoy things like uh, uh, Chris uh, Kutalik's work on the Slumbering Earth and Dunes because mm-hmm. again, first of all, it's like oh this is this is sort of familiar, also different but familiar. 
Or if, uh, if I look at uh, recently um, some work that I've seen coming out of the Philippines and then uh, ZXU's work from Malaysia. So uh, his recently published Lorn Song of the Bachelor is just uh, fantastic. Uh, like uh, it's, uh, do you know it? Uh, no. Okay, so Lorne Song of the Bachelor is this uh, um, jungle adventure that, well, yeah, it, it, it's a longer river in a uh, basically um, uh, uh, Malaysian-Indonesian context uh, jungle and it deals with all the topics you'd expect. But um, because uh, of, of the author's uh, uh, background and culture, it's uh, the way it's portrayed, it's just, it's just uh, amazing. Like, I, I read it and it was like, all of this is different from what I'd expect. All of this is mm-hmm. uh, has a slightly different point of view, and it was really brilliant to read. So I'm I'm really enjoying myself with that. Um, or if we go even to like science fiction, um, do you know the Chinese author Xin Liu, who wrote the Three Body Problem? It's been very famous recently. Heard the name, don't know any specific details. So I I recommend reading it because Mm -hmm. the perspective from which it's written, uh, the English translation is is good, and um, the but the perspective from which is it's written and the way the world is understood is so different from the the kind of perspective that even all let's say um, you know European or American writers have in common that Mm -hmm. I was just completely blown away when reading it. It's it's fun science fiction. It's it's very epic. Uh, it's mm-hmm. um, it's right up there with all of Stapledon's Star Maker when it, when it comes to how epic it is, mm-hmm. uh, but it's also different. So it it was really really fun to read, and um, yeah, I'm I'm actually really looking forward to to having more um, works from more different cultures, both in games and novels and books, mm-hmm. movies. Yeah, yeah. And and speaking of of role playing in different cultures, uh, you are now a resident of South Korea. Correct. Yes. What is role playing culture like in South Korea? Is it similar to the way it is in the West, or is it uh, just it's kind uh, of a different animal? Well, no, I think it's generally similar. Like I found it relatively mm-hmm. similar everywhere. But the thing is, in South Korea, when um, I think it was in the eighties, TSR made its first moves into Japan. So mm-hmm. uh, I think it was uh, Tunnels and Trolls and D and D became big in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Tunnels and Trolls is still relatively big there, but uh, they didn't target uh, South Korea at the time because it wasn't interesting enough as a market. So there was actually very little role-playing here for a while, uh, but they've recently translated 5th uh, edition D&D into Korean, so mm-hmm. that's a thing now. It's, uh, it's becoming mm-hmm. popular, and uh, for for the rest, because my Korean is still miserably horrible, I, I mostly play with um, with migrants, um, so there's a lot of migrant workers here from the U.S., from Europe, and so on, mm-hmm. and I mostly play with those in English. Gotcha. Um, I'm 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 having a bit of a play with words there. Like somebody recently told me about the difference between expat and migrant. So <laughs> <laughs> it's up and coming. It's still very new. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm not sure what it's going to turn into uh, because it's still still too early to see. And there will probably be local role-playing games and dealing with uh, with uh, the the local setting. Like I know that um, uh, a Kickstarter for a five E Korean-inspired setting is uh, is in production currently. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it, sh- it should be interesting. It should it should be something different. It, it's definitely as cultures go, um, Korea and East Asia in general are 
are very both very different and very similar uh, to Europe. So, mm -hmm. um, in one sense, I found it uh, more similar to Europe than than when I visited uh, the United States uh, of America, because here um, there is this uh, deep time underlying the local culture. So uh, when um, when I meet a Korean person, they are generally aware of uh, you know a couple of thousand years of them having lived there and having history there, mm -hmm. and this history forms part of their imagination of what it means to be Korean. And it's the mm -hmm. same place almost anywhere in Europe, like in uh, um, like for for my dad's village, uh, we know uh, when it was settled because we have a 13th century document. Uh, stored in the archives uh, of uh, the Archbishopric of Aquileia in mm -hmm. uh, uh, saying when the settlers came and where they came from. In uh, my specific town where I grew up, uh, we know that there were like uh, Bronze Age burials there, and we know where the holy sites were. And there was a small crusade late that by you know from the Archbishop in the 14th century to destroy a holy spring and. Uh, um, there's like uh, chariot burials, and then before that, there's uh, Stone Age tools. So there's this whole depth of time uh, that mm -hmm. makes it actually uh, ma makes you feel like your culture has deep roots in the place you are. So every single hill and mountain, everything has stories upon stories, more than you can even tell. Uh, which I found very different when I visited the U.S. or when I visited Australia, because it felt like uh, like there was this discontinuity. Mm -hmm. um, like history just suddenly begins, and then before yep. that there is nothingness. Uh, so, so, so that was actually very strange. Um, then, of course, there are you know massive differences because when it comes to things like um, like uh, culture and the foundational texts and the foundational myths and everything, they're much more similar. So you and I um, uh, share, for example, knowledge of Greek and Roman myths and the Bible and everything that. Uh, you know the the aftermath of the Roman Empire brought to Europe and then from there to America. Like, uh, mm -hmm. uh, like if you just if we just look at uh, what a bank building is today in in European or American cultures, it's usually been styled on an you know an ancient Roman or an ancient Greek temple actually going mm -hmm. far enough. Yep. Um, and then here I don't know those reference. You know, so I don't know the foundational mm -hmm. text and the references, and it's it's. Um, it's fascinating. I think it's going to take me decades more to to understand it in depth. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, for now, I'm I'm learning what it's like to uh, um, to have a character that uh, that isn't literate in a role playing game. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, Luca, what is currently available that uh, people who are are interested in checking out your work? What's currently available for people to to purchase and and start playing now? Yeah. So um, the uh, the big thing right now is uh, the ultraviolet grasslands. So we're just uh, wrapping up the Kickstarter um, and everything. We're we're a bit late because um, life intervened. So first of all, I was a bit too much of a perfectionist with design stuff, and then um, then uh, there was a personal tragedy in in the summer, which uh, uh, yeah was very uh, let, let's understate it. It was rather unfortunate. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so that's uh, now available in PDF via the Exalted Funeral website, exaltedfuneral.com. Um, then there is uh, Witchburner, which is uh, a much tighter and more focused adventure, and that one is uh, 
basically hunting a, a witch in a small central European town, uh, let's say. And uh, 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 both of them are available at exaltedfuneral.com, which burner is also available on Drive Through RPG. I mm-hmm. think, I think the Ultraviolet Grasslands is also available there. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. Uh, I, I'm sorry. Like I, I've got uh, my my partner Matt uh, from Exalted Funeral handling distribution, and I've been mm-hmm. like, like just in production <laughs> for the last months, and haven't mm-hmm. seen like, um, yeah, I haven't found time to to breathe or, or look around, so I get a little bit confused with these. So those, mm-hmm. and then um, the ongoing projects that I'm working on, I generally post them on social media, on um, on Twitter or on uh, Instagram. So on Twitter, I've got the, the, uh, the uh, it's at Stratometership. And the reason it's not at Wizard Fighter is because uh, that's too long for <laughs> a Twitter username. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it is at uh, Wizard Fighter on Instagram. And mm-hmm. then for those who want to actually follow along for the stuff I'm doing, because I, uh, I release it on Patreon, uh, chapter by chapter usually. And the next thing that... Um, should be done soon is um, is Long Winter. It's another sort of uh, Central European uh, inspired uh, setting where uh, a winter goddess is aggrieved and uh, she basically, you know, calls off spring for a year. So mm-hmm. so the winter just goes on and on, getting harder and harder. So it's uh, it's sort of a winter horror survival uh, sandbox, icebox, mm-hmm. icebox, yeah, icebox. And uh, in the event that I ever run that, uh, for any prospective players of mine, there will be a jar that says frozen references on it that you will be required to put money in every time you make one. Oh, like if it was my game, I would like <laughs> have the players put money in, and then I would give them advantage on their roll. Yep. Just to incentivize them to put more yep. money in the jar. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that one is, yeah. It's... um. Like with both Witchburner and Longwinter, I've actually had a lot of fun writing with them because a lot of it is also in, inspired um, quite a bit by uh, by local stories and by um, the ethnography of uh, of the old faith that existed in the in the region where I'm from. Well, it might still exist. I mean, uh, paganism is becoming very popular these days again. Um, mm-hmm. But it, there were still uh, still people who practiced parts of the old faith even like 50, 60 years ago. So, uh, Luca, unfortunately, we are kind of at the end of our time, so I will turn over the rest of the episode to you. Anything coming up that you want to promote that you haven't already discussed, uh, the floor is yours. Go for it. Mm, thank you. Um, I think I've discussed everything. There's, uh, like, right now it's uh, Witchburner and Ultraviolet Grasslands are out. Uh, drop by my Patreon, uh, which is Wizard Thief Fighter, uh, where... We're working on Long Winter now, and then that should be done soon. And then the next thing is uh, Red Sky Dead City, which is um, about a city that's just been sacked. That uh, The war has ended. The largest city in the world has been conquered by the invading army, and uh, the characters are then put in the uh, compromising position of um, looting the age-old necropolis to basically pay for the cost of the invasion. So, so that one is very much shades of gray uh, with a bright red sky. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, Luca, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, it was a blast talking with you. And I always get 
concerned when I bring people on that have also been on um, my good friends at Vintage RPG that we're going to end up covering the same ground. I feel like we did a good job talking about different things, though. So Yeah, I think so. It's been a pleasure, Ryan. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode. Uh, next week, uh, plans are a little bit up in the air as we are headed towards the holiday season. Um, I'm hoping to have the team behind Scum and Villainy and Band of Blades on the show. If that doesn't work out, I have been very generously gifted both a free copy of Zweihander and a PDF of um, Levi Combs and Occurrence at Howling Crater. So if the Band of Blades team does not get back with me, we'll be doing uh, two RPG reviews. Uh, Stay tuned to hear what we will be doing for next week's episode. But until next time, everyone, have fun at your game tables and tell all your friends that Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard is your place for the best in RPG interviews. I'll see you next time.